0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Although it's arguably the most important year of Fish's career, not many Attendance Bias guests pick shows or jams from 2009 to talk about. I mean, it's understandable 2009 isn't exactly overflowing with standout jams from Fish's entire catalog, but this podcast is about what's special to the guest, not necessarily the most mind-blowing music out there. However, today's guest... Lindsay Hope chose a show that has it all, August 7th, 2009 at The Gorge. Any fish show at The Gorge is special just by its nature, but in 2009, it felt like all of us who were into the band in 1 or 2.0 were getting a second chance to experience everything we've always wanted to do with fish, including seeing them at legendary venues like The Gorge, or in 2009's case, Red Rocks, or the fabulous Fox Theater in St. Louis. We'll talk more about that later. But even though the music wasn't always mind-blowing, there were dozens of special experiences, and Lindsay had to face her fair share of obstacles to make her dream of seeing Fish at the Gorge come true. So let's join Lindsay to talk about the Denver Police Department, Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters, and windy Condoms as we discuss Fish's show from August 7th, 2009 at the Gorge. Lindsay, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Thanks, Brian. I'm so excited to be
0: here. I'm so excited to have you here because you picked a show or at least a year that a lot of people on Attendance Bias don't really discuss. You chose August 7th, 2009 at The Gorge. 2009 has become simultaneously, I think, maybe the most important year in fish history, but also maybe the most overlooked year in fish history. So I'm excited to dig deep with you on that.
1: Me too. It it was such an important year for so many of us after 1.0 and 2.0 and coming back. And just the memories flooded in when I started thinking about talking about this show. And we'll get to why you chose it.
0: But before we get to this specific show of August 2009 at The Gorge, let's hear about you as a fan and get to know you with the Attendance Bias Lightning Round. Attendance Bias Lightning Round. So, Lindsay, when was your first fish show and what do you remember about it?
1: My first show was 6 uh, 1995. It was in Deer Creek, the first year they ever played Deer Creek. And I grew up in Ohio. So at the time, I, I was about, I think I was a few days after I turned 17. And I kind of tricked my parents. I really wanted to go see the dead at the time. But my mom had told me, you're so young, they're going to be around forever. Irony. Um, <laughs> Jerry died a few uh, months later, but I never got to see the dead. So I wanted to go see fish. They had no idea what I was go- getting myself into. They thought I was going to Deer Creek, Ohio. So I drove <laughs> with some friends, <laughs> and you know, it's I knew a few fish songs. I had, you know, it was back in the days of collecting CDs from Columbia Records, and so I was searching for this, the Baggett Taggett song, and I didn't know what it was called. Um, but I was too embarrassed to ask my friends which album it was on, so I just started collecting Fish albums. And one of the most memorable uh, songs from that show for me was "Sparkle." That just, you know, it—it's uh, kind of funny now,
0: <laughs> but that's what I remember most. That's funny because when I think of BMG and Columbia House and those record collecting, I always pictured Hoist as the the like they only had one Fish album usually and it was hoist. I also had a a recall from when you told me what your mom said about seeing the Grateful Dead. You'll see them next time. So when I was in sixth grade or fifth grade, Nirvana came to the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. And my friend Danny, I was only like 11, but he was so excited. He loved Nirvana, favorite band ever.
1: And his mom said the same thing. You'll see them the next time they come around. I was a huge Nirvana fan. I actually had a poster of Kurt Cobain on my ceiling. (laughs) It's okay. Trey filled my heart. (laughs) Well, well, I'm curious. How far is
0: deer? Well, where were you in Ohio? Because Ohio is, I learned from seeing fish, actually, that Ohio is an enormous state culturally, that Cleveland and Cincinnati might as well be different countries. So where were (laughs) you in Ohio at this time?
1: Actually, smack dab right in the middle of Cleveland and Cincinnati and Columbus. Okay. So, so yeah, Deer Creek was probably, I don't know, maybe a four or five hour drive. And who did you go with? Some of my high school friends, some girlfriends. I've always seen fish with a bunch of girlfriends, which is rare and awesome. 30, almost 30 years later. That is awesome. So that was your first show,
0: 619.95. What was your most recent show? And what did you think of it?
1: Well, now I live in Colorado. So I um, went to the most recent four night the first four night ever, Dick's Run. Um, I've been in Colorado since 2006. So where a lot of my 1.0 fish shows were in the Midwest and on the East Coast. Now I mostly stay on the West Coast to see fish and I've been to all the Dick's Runs with the exception of last year because I had something come up. So yeah, all four nights of Dick's and it was awesome. Did you have a favorite of the four? Oh gosh. I mean, everything, every night was a little different for different reasons. I brought my parents on the first night and oh, my God. My mom, we should spend the whole <laughs> podcast talking about that. <laughs> right? It was my dad's 10th show, actually. His first show was at Polaris in 1998. I took him when I was about 19. So that That's was a good show. It was a good show. Yeah. Um, and But it was my mom's first show. She's 72. And I decided, you know, this is something that I've loved for my entire life. And there were so many years where I was too busy to bring my parents and share that with them. But now that they're getting up there, I felt like I would regret it forever if I didn't share the experience with her. And she was blown away.
0: What did she like? Well, I should have her on the podcast. Well, what <laughs> were, well, what really, what were her impressions?
1: Well, she went the, so she went the first night, which they played some of the more old school songs that she knew in the first set. And then the second set, she kind of got lost. That was when they played a few, like the howling and um, don't doubt me. And a few of the new Halloween songs that, were a little not exactly what she was expecting. She really wanted to hear Bathtub, Jim, and Divided Sky. She loved it. She might want to come back next year, but it's funny because she was texting me every single day after that because she was looking at the set lists, feeling so left out that she missed out on so many of the songs that she wanted to hear. So you know what you say.
0: Next year, she's got to come to all four.
1: <laughs> well, she said, next year, I think I'll come on the fourth night.
0: it <laughs> oh. <laughs> You know, I've never... Taking my parents to a show I've offered, but I think it's this unspoken thing where they're like, happy to let me have this. And they're like, it's almost like when Facebook or uh, MySpace was new and my parents joined and I did. And my dad said, I just signed up for Facebook. I don't think we should be friends. And like that was literally two sentences in a row is how he put it. And I think that's how both of my parents feel about fish also.
1: I totally get that. And for a lot of my 20s and 30s, I felt the same way. But now that I'm in my 40s, and a little bit older, a lot calmer than I used to be. It's something wonderful to share with them. They're music fans. I grew up listening to music, and it's been such a big part of our family. And I go to most shows with my sister. So my sister was with us as well. So, I mean, it was, it was very special. They were definitely the oldest people there.
0: Speaking of being a lot calmer now. My next question for the lightning round, what role do you play in your show crew? Because you said that you go with a whole bunch of female friends, specifically you said. So are you the caretaker, the one who makes sure everyone's okay? Are you the agent of chaos who everyone has to keep an eye on? Are you the responsible one driving home? Are you the people who know people?
1: Who are you in your group? I love this question. Um, (laughs) I am definitely the, the instigator. I'm the convener. Um, I'm the one shamelessly begging all my friends to go to shows. It's a little bit easier for me because I don't have kids and I work for myself. So now that my friends are getting a little bit older or my friends, kids are getting a little bit older. They're kind of coming back into the mix where over the last 10 ish years, it was a lot harder for them to get away and go to shows. So this year I had a group of girlfriends that met up in Atlantic city and we're going to go to Mexico next year. And I'm just so glad that everybody's returned back. So I'm the dancing queen. Um, I'm a stats nerd, which is kind of why I'm here, I think. And uh, compared to a lot of um, women that I know who love fish, I definitely nerd out a little
0: bit harder. Uh, what is your most controversial fish opinion?
1: I'm almost scared to say it because of the backlash, but I'm just it's not a safe fan. It's
0: safe space. Of... Save space okay. Don't
1: worry about it. Thank you. I'm not a fan of what's the use. Every time they play it, I just find myself thinking, next. I love the song. Although starting in
0: maybe 2017, maybe 2018, I thought it was overplayed a little bit. So I thought like the specialness of it in a way got kind of zapped, but that's nothing against the song itself. Like it's not what's the use's fault that it's overplayed, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like it's it's not about the song. I like it, but I could definitely see what you're saying.
1: Yeah, especially in the middle of the second set. I know people just love it, but I think it just sucks the life right out of it.
0: What is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show?
1: So I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts, and most people aren't talking about things necessarily that are weird about the band. But when I started thinking about this question, I'm like, it was the Darien Lake show in 1997 when Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters came on stage. I was like 19 at the time and I was like, what is going on? It was so weird and so wild. And I've tried to find YouTube footage of it and it barely exists. Um, So it's just imprinted in my memory as really, really weird. I could not
0: imagine what it looked like. And then I think it was at Super Bowl after one of the nights they had archival footage playing on a giant TV screen. And I walked by and I heard the bozo and I'm like, I know that I know that I just followed my ears and I finally saw what it looked like. And it was just as weird as I could have not even possibly imagined.
1: Totally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I was so young and so confused. It was right before the great went. I remember that and I have one other weird thing just because we're coming a hot off this dicks run where um, there was a naked guy actually happens to be somebody that I know, Um, but that's, that's for another podcast. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I was at the show at the Kohl center in Madison, Wisconsin in 1998 when the naked guy ran on the stage. And that was when they changed the lyrics to Karini and the lyrics about the naked dude stuck forever and so it was really funny this year to have a naked dude running across the field empty field and then trey changed the lyrics again um, about the naked dude at least he had some boots it's just kind of a weird irony that only a few people in the world would understand that having been at those shows (laughs) that it means something when was this show played
0: so today's show August 7th 2009 at the Gorge was part of the late summer 2009 tour and this is back when Fish would have an early summer tour and a late summer tour. I remember when they announced all these dates I couldn't wait. I was just in 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 like I I was seeing so many shows on the East Coast and then when they announced the West Coast shows I made it a priority with my then girlfriend. I said, we have to go somewhere. We have to go on an adventure. It was either Red Rocks, where they were playing four nights in a row, or we were going to these shows at the Gorge, and I think they
1: played a show at Shoreline before or
0: after these shows. Do you remember?
1: Yeah, it was in between Red Rocks and the Gorge because I went to all of those. Okay, I'm talking to
0: the right person. So it was either going to be Colorado or Northern California and Washington. And just with the gift of fish tickets by mail, we got tickets to all four of the Gorge shows. And I'm sorry, all four of the Red Rock shows. And it was just, well, that's not. A coincidence? That's divine intervention, right? That's a mission from God. When you get tickets to four nights at Red Rocks, but soon after they announced the second quote late summer leg, which kicked off with four nights at Red Rocks, went straight west, like you just said, to Shoreline up to the Gorge for two nights, and then weirdly they cut back east to Chicago, Darien Lake, Hartford, and Spac. So the West Coast didn't get much love in two thousand nine, at least in the summer.
1: Yeah, you know, I can't remember. Besides those, I don't know, four, seven shows. Um, But that was a heck of a run. And you're so lucky you got tickets to Red Rocks because I think that was one of the toughest tickets that I can remember. And I remember that I bought tickets, but I got scammed, I think on Craigslist probably. And I ended up getting a refund from PayPal and bought them again. And I paid $800 for for the four pack, which is probably the only time I've ever paid over face for a fish ticket
0: as against scalping as I am on both sides, but to see them at Red Rocks, because they're never going to play there again. I know, I'm, I know. They're <laughs> not going to, you know, you pay whatever it's worth to you. Speaking of Red Rocks, they were mixing together all different kinds of venues. Like there were the expected sheds, the summer tour like Great Woods or the Gorge. Uh, but there was also old school venues that they had outgrown like Red Rocks, or they actually played uh, the Fox Theater in St. Louis. That summer um, or new ones like Bonnaroo and Toyota Park in Chicago, which they've never returned to. Right. They found Northerly Island more recently, and that's going to become their Chicago summer tour step. Uh, they play the Asheville Civic Center. So to me, this sent a message. I'd love to hear your thoughts from Fish to the fans that in 3.0, Fish will do
1: whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want to do it. Yeah, it's wild to think about. I remember I feel like the Fox Theater was more like five or 6,000, and it was the smallest venue since I'd been seeing fish that they played at. And um, I didn't go to that show, but yeah, it was like, the, and just the energy of having them back. I think, you know, you kind of got to think about where we were at the time, coming off five years of thinking that maybe we'd never see fish again. And, you know, then you have Hampton, and then you have these summer tour where, I mean, Everybody was just so darn happy to have our band back. It's hard to even remember how sad we were and just what a shock it was to get them back. It was
0: a shock. It really, I mean, there were rumors leading up to it, but to see that announcement, our hearts leapt, our collective and individual hearts leapt. And when you look at musically, I think this is the reason that not a lot of fans picked. Uh, or at least not a lot of guests on attendance by his pick 2009 shows fish was still kind of getting used to themselves again by this point, the second half of summer in 2009, like there weren't a ton of tent bowl jams from this whole year. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be people who would tell me, yeah, well, that time in great woods, you know, there are good jams in 2009. I'm not disputing that, but when you talk about the 3.0 era and the best that there is 2009 is not going to come up a whole bunch I think the band was mostly following, I've always called it a recital run through where the first set would have something like 13 songs, whether it was a lot of stuff from Joy or maybe songs they haven't played since 1998, stuff like that. But today's show is actually an exception. They only had seven songs played in the
1: second set. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you go back and you listen, I don't listen to 2.0 very often, but lately I've kind of gone back and listened to some of those shows and they weren't as like, they weren't sober then the sh- the jams were really long and coming back in 2009, it was a total reinvention, I think for them refinding, how are we going to play together now in a totally different mindset than we were before. And yeah, it was a little, a little rusty at a lot of times, but. When you think back to that time and you remember the joy you felt by getting to see them again, it just makes up for it, at least for me.
0: The only rusty part that I saw was kind of the the instinct to jam. I did not think it was rusty. They actually sounded quite tight. The only thing was, I think all of us, myself, I'm guilty of this, myself included, expected these like 27-minute David Bowies to knock our heads <laughs> into the solar system And they just didn't happen. They just played a lot of songs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of been a lot like that in a lot of the 3.0, and if you call it 4.0 era. So who were you and where
0: were you at this part of 2009 in August?
1: So I was living in Colorado. I was working at a nonprofit. I kind of thought that my hippie concert fish following days were behind me because fish was gone for so long. And I remember I went to go see widespread panic for the first time at Red Rocks. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I can get into a different band, Um, but not the way that I was into fish. So I, I luckily I had a job. I was like, I had money coming in. I was able to splurge to go to see like a handful of shows that summer and I was just stoked to have my favorite band back. Red Rocks, the first night was my 100th show. And I had some friends who went in really early and we saved a spot right in the third row. And I felt like, you know, I was looking into Trey's eyes the whole night and it was just magical. So while you
0: could have picked that show, why did you pick today's show, August 7th, 2009, at the Gorge?
1: It's funny because this one is a show that I've come back to listen to the music a lot over the last. Gosh, it's been more than a decade, but I also just have a really distinct memory of where I was um, at the moment. I I was at the Red Rock shows. My friends and I were staying in a hotel in Denver, and on the fourth night, I woke up and I went out to the parking lot and bummed as what I I was when I went out (laughs) to my car and it had been towed. But sure enough, I found out when I went inside to figure out where the towing company was, They don't tow cars from that lot. It had been stolen. And I had a Subaru Outback at the time. And when we called the police, they came and they took a report. They said, oh, you know, there's about nine keys to Subarus. And if they, you know, if they gather up the Subaru keys, they're sure to find one that will work. Your car's gone. And I'm like, they stole my car. Um, Apparently, car theft is not a big concern of the Denver police. So... I was supposed to drive my car to Shoreline and to the Gorge. So I ended up having to go to Enterprise and renting a car, which I think wasn't supposed to leave the state of Colorado. So getting to the Gorge, and this was the first year I'd ever been there because I had grown up, like I said, in the Midwest. So I had always dreamed of going to the Gorge. It just never worked out until this year. So um, I, I, was, I was, my expectations were through the roof and it delivered. What do you remember
0: about the Gorge? Because I went in 2016. That was my first and to date only time. I could still close my eyes and just instantly transported and be back there. What images or feelings come to you when you think of that venue?
1: Gosh, I mean, seeing well, first of all, seeing fish on the West Coast, which I have found out over the last decade, a little bit over a decade, it's kind of a little bit different beast than the East coast. The crowd is a little bit more chill. The shakedowns just feel a little bit different. So immediately when we got to the gorge, I just had this um, this feeling because I'd been waiting so long to see fish um, at the venue. And we waited in line so that we could get up close because I think at the time, and I'm having a hard time remembering, but I don't think there were any pit tickets. It was just all GA. So if you waited in line, um, you could run and get as close as possible. Well, it turns out that's a really long run. yeah, <laughs> to be in pretty good shape. And I was with some guys, and I was like I was falling behind. But, you know, we got a spot up really, really, really close on Mike's side. And so I was just I was stoked. This is back in the days before the gorge, they closed in the backdrop. So it, There's a lot of wind throughout the show, which maybe we'll talk about later, but um, you could see right through the band into the Columbia River Gorge, even when you were right up close, which is just a different feel than after, I think maybe in 2011, they closed it in. So um, the memory of being right up close at the gorge, looking up at the mountain, I mean, yeah, it's incredible. Set one. The
0: first set starts with Down With Disease and my first notes were, what a surprise. I thought it was 1994 when Down With Disease was liable to be played anywhere. These days I expected to open a second set or to be the second song of a second set after a more tight, cohesive, short
1: opener. And the crowd, you could hear it, goes wild for it. Yeah, super high energy, um, unexpected opener. I would say compared to the exploratory vehicle that Down with disease has become in the last 10 or 15 12 years um it doesn't really go there but yeah it was i mean a killer opener
0: yeah it's more fun dance music it's more of a party downward disease opener than a close your eyes and be transported to the other side of the galaxy Which is what, by the way, is what the gorge is great for because it feels like you're at the ends of the earth anyway. And the sunset takes three hours to go down. Absolutely. (laughs) They followed down with disease with Ocelot. And I remember this song getting a lot of hate when it premiered in 2009. You know, a lot of people called it like Fish's Tennessee Jed. It doesn't go anywhere, it's rambling. But the same story happens every time it's played, even now people kind of groan, they get their beer, they roll their eyes, but then by the end when Trey's killing that solo, everyone's thrilled and cheering like crazy.
1: Yeah, and I looked. I had to look back at this because I remember it being really new at the time, and uh, it was only the second or third time they ever played it, and the Joy album hadn't even come out yet. So at this point, it is brand new to everyone. I remember liking it the whole time, um, but there's a few songs during the show that they weren't the debuts, but it was the first time almost everyone in the crowd were hearing them.
0: Well, that was part of 2009, I think. You know, when I, when they first started their tour early in June, they opened at Fenway Park, I remember. And then they played Three Nights at Jones Beach. And I went to those Three Nights at Jones Beach and they premiered a lot of joy songs, at the very least Um Kill Devil Falls. They played, uh, I know in Great Woods on the sixth, they played Let Me Lie for the first time. And so there was a lot of everyone's pumped, everyone's psyched, and then everyone gets super duper quiet when they start a new song and we're not sure how to react.
1: Yeah, totally. I was just listening to the attendance bias podcast with Megan the other day about Virginia beach. And when Trey was explaining the names to all the new songs and how he used to do that back then at this point, he's not doing that. Um, and everybody's just kind of thinking, you know, what are these new songs? Kind of just trying to figure it out. And I i don't, we didn't even have iPhones then. I mean, maybe some people did, but I remember I brought my Blackberry to this show. So not even, I don't even have any photos really because we didn't have phones that had that capability. It's, that's how long ago this is.
0: <laughs> and service at the
1: Gorge is paltry at best anyway. I mean, back then it was probably non-existent.
0: Yeah. But you know what? You could tell your mom, it doesn't matter what show she goes to. Because at any fish show, they might be playing songs where people don't know them and they're kind of shrugging their shoulders and wishing that they caught the other night where they played other songs. Here in 2009, it's Ocelot in 2022. It's The Howling. (laughs) Absolutely. And they flipped up with Pebbles and Marbles, which was very fast. It was very peppy. That was the the word that kept coming to my mind.
1: (laughs) I love that. Pebbles and Marbles. For some reason, this transports me back to the early 2000s. Um, it brings back a huge flood of memories for me. It's like this nostalgia and what I call in my brain, this weird, weird. And I can't really put my finger on it, but it just makes me feel weird. And uh, it it is very nostalgic. And they just actually played it at Dick's. You know, they don't play it that often anymore. And it just takes me back to those early years in 2000 to 2003-ish and where I was in my head at the time. And Yeah, it's hard to explain, but...
0: (laughs) If I looked up in Lindsay's dictionary what a weird weird is,
1: can you give it a shot? It's a combination of a feeling and a memory and an emotion that just gives me a strange feeling. It's one of those things that happens to me every time the seasons change. You know, when fall comes around, I get this weird, weird of, you know, high school and I get a wave of when I started college and I just get this weird, weird feeling that's hard to put my finger on. Um, But I've been talking about it for years and now my husband says weird, weird all the time and I love it.
0: Your husband and I are going to start saying it because I don't know, I think maybe it has to do with sense memory. Because you mentioned smells like maybe because I'm a teacher and I my school usually starts at the very beginning of September. And I always go in at the end of August to kind of set up my room. No matter how old you are, no matter what state you live in, all schools smell the same. All empty school hallways smell the same. And I get a weird weird when I go in there and I go. It's like smells like school. Like, oh, my God, I have so much ahead of me and I've been teaching for 15 years. Like it's all these weird combinations, like you said, of nostalgia, of current sense memory, of wondering about what's coming in the f- near future. I love it. It's a weird word for sure. Love it. <laughs> so After Pebbles and Marbles, which, by the way, shows off some of the band's talents. They're not shy here Fishman, especially, at around four minutes, crushes the drums. I'm a big Who fan, and I thought Keith Moon was playing with fish all of a sudden. (laughs)
1: Going back to this whole show, I concede Fishman driving so many of these jams, and I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit later. But um, listening back, preparing for this podcast because I listened to it a few more times with a little bit of a different lens, and what Fishman does to change the te- the tempo of these songs is unmistakable.
0: Yeah, he's the greatest. And aside from changing the the tempo, the next song Possum, he keeps straight ahead. For like nine minutes, and for me, this was the highlight of the whole
1: set. I, I well, I it's not the highlight of the whole set for me. However, listening back, I I noticed this really intricate Trey Page interplay where it's like they're talking to each other, and I don't remember that from the time, but it is so obvious when you go back and listen, and you can just see it almost in your brain of Trey like looking over at Paige and smiling and then Paige playing his little riffs. I mean, it's really, it's very unique.
0: So happy to hear you describe that. Something that got me into fish big time was listening to tapes from the very early 90s, like 92, 91, when they're developing their musical language. And like you said, they're talking to each other through their instruments. And almost immediately in this possum, Trey and Paige start doing that. It's a simple call and response, but there's not really that much simple about it. Anyone who's not a precise expert musician couldn't do this.
1: I know. And I, I guess I don't listen to as many of those early tapes. I mean, it's been a long time since I've listened to early 90s fish. So maybe this was happening in more possums, but it really stood out to me going back and re-listening to the show.
0: And they also play with dynamics. There's a part where it goes down to almost nothing. like you get, They're almost like they're not playing, like close to a silent jam, but not exactly. And then Paige keeps it going. It's super fun. This is one of the better versions of possum that I've heard since they came back in 2009. And I wasn't even here.
1: <laughs> it's fun to listen to, for sure.
0: After Possum, they play Sleep, which I love. I wish they would play it more often. And the crowd must have gone absolutely bonkers for the next song, Destiny Unbound.
1: Oh, my gosh. I Destiny Unbound is a song that many of us that are around my age have been chasing for years. And so it was Probably the hugest bust out I've ever seen, um, and I was so excited. Uh, you know, it's a little imperfect. They hadn't played it in a while, um, but man, I mean, anybody who's been, you know, I mean, I think they played it at Fenway. They did, right? They played and it then Fenway, yeah, once in two thousand three. But they before that they hadn't played it since ninety one. So it was a huge deal.
0: Yeah, there's a certain age of fish fans that if you got into the band at a certain time and really read up and boned up on their mythology, not just their history, but the mythology of, Oh, they used to play this song and they never played it again. They played it four times and never again. Destiny Unbound was kind of at the top of that mythology where it's like, it's this huge want from the fans. Like everyone wants them to play it to the point where Trey once said that he'll, Play it if the entire audience sings the first line in unison. And at Red Rocks, actually, I think it was '96. There was a there was a a chant. There was a a try for it, and Trey shut it down. He said <laughs> no. And there were rumors that they stopped playing it because it sounded too much like a Grateful Dead song. Like there's so many rumors and swirls around Destiny Unbound that when they came back and played it again at Fenway, like you said, it's almost every time they play it now. It's a gift every single time.
1: And, you know, it makes me think that in 2009, you know, hot off the tails of a five-year breakup, a lot of fans that are on this tour are probably new and had no idea what they were playing. So one of the funny things you can hear on the recording after Destiny is um, a little bit of wind on the microphone. Um, The recording is actually interesting because it's very imperfect, at least the one I was listening to um, on Live Fish. So you can hear the wind on the mic, and you can hear it throughout several of the songs. But there's this part right after Destiny, um, when Trey says, it's always important to be safe. And then he's like, replacing the top of the microphone cover on it, like a condom. (laughs) He's like (laughs) laughing. And he's like, I don't want to pick anything up from this. I heard fish use this microphone once. And I remember I was so close, I could see exactly what was happening. It was hilarious. But The gorge is huge and there are no screens. So I'm sure most of the people, if they heard him saying those things, were like, what is he talking about? And when you listen to the recording, how would you know? But I remember like the wind kept blowing the cover off of the mic. It was really funny.
0: There's so much wind on these recordings. You're right. The gorge is
1: enormous. Well, and that's why they closed in the back of the stage. I mean, like there was just too much wind all the time. It's right over that gigantic, you know, Columbia River gorge. So Um, Yeah, that was just really funny going back and listening to that part.
0: After Destiny is a real powerhouse of Stash and Sneak and Sally. I know I said earlier that Possum was probably my highlight of the set, but I think I may have spoke too soon because (laughs) this, (laughs) this combo right here is really hard to beat. Stash, I thought, was good. It doesn't really explore a lot. There is tension and release, but I wrote that it's very low stakes tension.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm I'm a sucker for a late first set stash. It's just one of those things when it's starting to get dark, it just fits perfectly. I mean, the, the Sally was definitely the highlight of the first set for me. And uh, I was standing so close. Trey like did a little bit of a riff that you could barely hear. And everybody up front could see and hear that it was Sally. And man, the place just erupted. It was, it was so exciting.
0: Yeah, you could definitely tell how the crowd reacts to this just as it starts. And it has its usual funk and vocal breakdown jam about five minutes with Barely any bass, which I thought was odd. Mike usually leads this, but there's well, barely any bass in minute. in the, in well,
1: the I, Go ahead. I, I think that was the first time they ever did a vocal jam in it like this. I remember really? at the time it was like, oh, my God, why are they doing this right now? This is awesome. Yeah. No, they had never done anything like that before.
0: But it breaks soon enough. It only lasts for about a minute and a half. And Fishman is on the Toms like uh mike and Paige, you're kind of dueling uh pages on the world it's her. i loved it at like eight and a half minutes it's musical telepathy this is the fish that people came for and hoped to see in all of this calendar year
1: No, oh. and the, I mean in this this Sally plus some things in the second set, like it's so memorable. I listened to this so many times. Um, they hadn't, you know, this is way before the plinko and before the you know the new style of jamming, and it was perfection. I love that it got slow. They did the vocal jam, and then it sped up again. It was you know it was it was glorious.
0: And toward the end, it gets very abstract and ambient. I don't know your general feelings about two but there were parts around 12 and a half minutes that I was reminded of it, of certain jams that were, I just, you know, you may may need to sit down during, you might need to process it because to enjoy it in real time is kind of difficult. It's, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just not meant for popular (laughs) consumption. It's just straight up weird. This is the good stuff. <laughs> it is the good stuff. Well put. <laughs> but they're not. They're not going to let us close it on soundscapey, weird ambient stuff. They close with "Cavern," which is a typical first set closer. It's a nice capper to a good set.
1: Totally, there's a little extra rock star Trey Juice in it, and it's a uh, yeah, <laughs> love me a cavern, cavern closer.
0: Hi everybody, Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though Attendance Bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. So I just wanted to ask a small favor, if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways, if you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use, if you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it, or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Set two. And the second set opens with the Moma dance, and just like Cavern normally closes a set one, Moma dance is a pretty good opener for set two, just to get you grooving. The sun is down by now. You know, you want to get everyone in with that smooth wah-wah pedal. It's a nice way to warm up. Nothing crazy, but it doesn't matter. We're not there yet.
1: Oh, yeah, I'll take a MoMA set to opener anytime. Love the funk. And I was super happy with that one.
0: And they follow it up with light, which I put in my notes. Is this the song of the year? Because I did not like light. And I've been very vocal about this on this podcast. I'll save everyone's time at at this moment. (laughs) But I don't like light. But the best jams always come from light. And 2009 was the most extreme version of that idea that even if you don't like the song, the best gems came from it consistently.
1: Isn't that funny? I feel that way about some of the other songs. Um, Light. This is only the third time they played it. So again, it's really brand new. The album hasn't come out yet. No one's ever really heard it. So there weren't probably a lot of preconceived notions about what it was going to be or what it was going to go into. And it got really, really beautiful. I I think, um, you know, it's it's a little bit standard for the first eight, eight minutes or so that Paige starts leading this new sound and Trey pops in with a little riff. There's a little mic Trey interplay and around like 10 and a half or 11 minutes, they lock into this gorgeous new melody. And then Trey's feeling it so hard that he starts singing, ooh, <laughs> and I'm not going to sing because I can't sing. But <laughs> That makes two of us. He's a little off, but just like it seemed so natural that he was just feeling it so deep that he started singing. That he's a a little melody of ooze that he's never sang before.
0: It melted me. I loved it. It melted me to listening to it. So I can't imagine how you felt at the time that part at 11 minutes, I wrote down about it too, that it's just this kind of Calypso feeling. You know, I want, I want to say, where's my daiquiri right now while they're playing this. And when Trey starts vocalizing, you were right on that it's not pitch perfect. You know, this isn't Bobby McFerrin singing, But at the same time, it's so vulnerable and human and beautiful. And Trey has said for years that they want to play. The point of their improvisation is to play and get relaxed enough to play as they sound in soundcheck, where no one's watching and no one's really listening except the professionals, the people who have to be there. This kind of sounds like something that would have developed from that in that mood.
1: I'm getting the chills just thinking about it because I can hear it in my head. I want to sing the ooze, but I'll embarrass myself, so I'm not going to. <laughs> but it it was chilling. It was just so beautiful. And, if, you know, that was, again, kind of like I felt during the Sally. Like, this is why we came. And it was just perfect.
0: Next is Taste, which is a perfect segue from Light. They don't just stop and then play Taste. It does segue truly almost like a band-aid that goes from one to the other uh the usual amazing piano work from page and i was thinking is this a cool down song from light how could it be taste is so upbeat by itself like i know that taste hasn't really jammed out in a long while but this really got the crowd going there's no rest for the weary in this set so far
1: totally it was such a great combo coming out of light i loved it too and to push things up just another level,
0: they play Fluffhead. And to me, and I'd love to hear again what you think. Fluffhead took on a special resonance in 3.0 because they downright refused to play it in 2.0. They just didn't do it for whatever reason. They weren't practiced enough. It wasn't they weren't in the mood for it. They didn't they couldn't pull it off, whatever. So every time, kind of like Destiny Unbound, it's a gift, just even more so because Fluffhead is like the fish saw.
1: I know it's funny. Thinking back, that first night in Hampton, when they came back and they opened up with Fluffhead, and we we everybody was just like, "Oh my God!" Like they're bringing Fluffhead back. And so I, you know, I agree. And yeah, ever since Hampton, after that, it, you can just tell how excited they are to play it. It's like you can. almost hear the excitement and you know there's there's a little there's a few flubs here and there it's not perfect they obviously didn't practice it as much as they could have i mean compared to how they played fluffhead this summer i feel like a few times it was nearly flawless um but yeah you can just feel the excitement because they knew how excited everybody else would be too
0: yeah trey even screams i think it's trey he screams here we go right before they do the big solo The dog was sitting to this and I had a huge bright smile, just like you got the chills a couple of minutes ago. I was like, all right, yeah, let's go.
1: lost that. <laughs> oh, quintessential fish right there.
0: Yeah. They follow it up with Joy, which is a true cool down song, but man, 2009 was a rough year for Joy songs. Like it's, this song has gained its reputation and its love and I like it a lot more now than I did back then, but you know, even with the wind, I could, I could already hear the crowd talking
1: <laughs> during. during- <laughs> I know. Oh, it's so funny because I know that the song kind of maybe isn't, you know, everybody's favorite, but in that moment I had heard it at Red Rock. So again, the album hasn't come out yet. It's a brand new song and Trey's singing about how we want you to be happy. I mean, it was like, if you're not getting tears in your eyes, then I just, I, I, maybe this is just me being a sappy woman, but I, like, I felt this so deeply, especially, you know, just anybody who has lost, I don't know. It was, it was um, very meaningful for me that particular day in that moment, because it was so, so special. And any hate that joy I've heard from other people about joy. Just it can't get through my barrier because it's, it was so special on that day.
0: And on top of that, with it being about Trey's sister, we want you to be happy. And then the refrain of this is your song too. He's telling the audience, you know, if you're hating on it, you're hating on your own song because this is your song too. You're the audience. You're here. We wouldn't be playing it if it weren't for you.
1: (laughs) I know. Oh, you're giving me the chills again. This one really gets me. (laughs)
0: It it, it took a long time for joy to grow on me, but man, it really has.
1: Yeah. And then
0: we're already toward the end of the set where they absolutely slay it with bathtub gin and Harry Hood. Imagine the set list on paper, just, you know, looking at it at random, let alone being there.
1: I know. well, and see, I think of it as a one, two, three punch, I guess, because then there's a slave encore. But we got to talk about the bathtub, yeah, <laughs> because I mean, there's been a million amazing amazing bathtubs. But at this point, this one was so good. I feel like after the show, I crumbled to the ground with just happiness because I was like, the band is back. this is This was magical. This is exactly what I needed. It's hard to, like, I don't know if, I, you know, I could break down the entire jam, but everybody can go back and listen to it themselves. It's definitely a must hear. This is another one where you can really hear Fish just leading the the different sections. And it, it kind of reminded me of some of these old 1.0 jams um, with all these different sections this bathtub did.
0: Yeah, it challenged my preconceived notions of 2009. This yeah. jam did, especially, I mean, the whole show has. But this jam is really what's like, you got to stand up and take this seriously. This isn't just a, as you Brian call it, or a sidle show. <laughs> you know, it, there's there's real guts here. There's something to be taken seriously in this bathtub gin, I would argue is toward the top of the list. Um, fish.net, the jam charts describe it as, quote, very good improvisational gin with multiple sections. Like you just said, the jam breaks away from gin proper proceeding through at least three moments, uh, sorry, three movements before settling with no return to bathtub gin.
1: Yeah. I mean, it goes into this, um, you know, pages on fire and then Mike brings the funk. It's almost like this boogie on ish Mike feeling, I feel like. Um, and then a new rhythm starts and then it goes back into raging and it's, and then it's supposed to
0: have speed at one point. Yeah.
1: And then page on the organ at the end. It's just it's 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 awesome.
0: And then, like you said, it goes into Harry Hood. We I already know you mentioned the slave, but then it goes into Harry Hood. And I, my only thought was, you can't have a run at the gorge without Harry Hood closing a set or a show.
1: Totally. I mean, maybe these days there's so many songs and they don't bring these in, but when you think about the catalog that they were playing from in 2009, this is a like they're this is a good set list for the show and. Um, at the beginning of the hood there's a really great intro i've listened to this one so many times um that i can sing it in my sleep um little another uh, little bit of Joj from mike and then there's a tray and page love a little extra it's just it's it is a it's a special one
0: you mentioned it just a few seconds ago but harry hood closes the second set and they come back on the encore for slave to the traffic light just in a lineup of murderers row Bathtub gin, Harry Hood, slave to the traffic light to end the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and at this moment, it's, uh, you know, you're at the gorge and fish is back and they were broken up for five years and they're playing this beautiful slave under the stars. I mean, it's pure perfection.
0: You mentioned that you fell over onto the floor. What was going through your body? And I don't mean any intoxicants. I mean, really emotionally, what was going through your body and your head at the time?
1: Well, I, I it's not so much fell over. Like I just crumbled. Like I, I was okay. just, I was like, I mean, and I've done this at a couple of shows where I'm just like, all right, I'm done. Like that, that, like, that's all I need. Like I, um, I'm so happy. It, my heart and my soul are so full. Um, that's how I felt after the show. And, you know, sometimes when you're leaving and the energy and everybody's just so excited and people are cheering as you're walking out, this show was one that felt like that where people are just so jazzed. Um, Cause sometimes, you know, you walk out and you're just kind of meandering back to your campsite or to your car. But this was like probably people doing the wave um, with screaming all the way up the path, all the way back to the campground, which is a quite a hike. Um, just with just pure energy after the show. And this was one of those.
0: Lindsay Hope, thank you so much for coming on to Attendance Bias to talk about and recall your experience, your weird weirds from August 7th, 2009 at The Gorge, dispelling my notions, my preconceived notions of 2009. But in addition to that, recalling a time that, is actually a long time ago now, right? 13 years ago. But actually, whenever you think about it, it feels brand new at the same time. I'm so glad you picked this show and that you're willing to come on to Attendance Bias.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's been so fun to talk about it and to get to know you and talk about fish.
0: And that's it for our discussion today with Lindsay Hope, but there were quite a number of facts and figures we got to double check, so now it's time for a quite a lengthy attendance bias fact check.
1: Attendance bias fact check.
0: When discussing her first show ever, Lindsay says that her parents thought that she was going to Deer Creek, Ohio, instead of the Deer Creek Amphitheater in Noblesville, Indiana. Deer Creek, Ohio is a mere 26-minute drive from her native Columbus, while Deer Creek Amphitheater is closer to a three-hour drive. The Nirvana concert at the Nassau Coliseum that my friend Danny wanted to go to, but his mom said no, he can go catch them the next time they were in town, was on November 24, 1993. Fisher's show at the fabulous Fox Theater in St. Louis was played on June 16, 2009, The small theater opened in 1929 and has a capacity of 4,500 people. When speaking about the tepid fan response to Ocelot, Lindsay mentioned that the Joy album had not yet been released at the time that this show was played. For the record, Joy was released on September 8, 2009, and Ocelot had its live debut on May 31, 2009 at Fenway Park. In the same part of the conversation, I brought up that Fish debuted a lot of songs off Joy at the early June 2009 Jones Beach Run. In order, those songs were Stealing Time from the Faulty Plan, Kill Devil Falls, and 20 Years Later. Just three songs, but it felt like a lot more at the time. Lindsay and I discussed the bust-out nature of Destiny Unbound, and we correctly list the few times that they played it in 2003 and 2009. Before the famous Nassau 2003 bust-out, they last played it on November fifteenth, nineteen 1991 at Trax, T-R-A-X, a music club in Charlottesville, North Carolina. In that same vein, the attempt by fans to sing the first line of songs in unison was not at Red Rocks in 1996. I was wrong about that. It was at the Hampton Coliseum on November twenty second, 1997. The band didn't play it then. But Trey acknowledged the audience's attempt by calling the singing, quote, a cannibalistic death chant. Toward the end of today's conversation, I said that Fish can't have a run at the Gorge without playing Harry Hood. I checked the stats, and I wasn't exactly right on that. I checked the stats, and Fish has played the Gorge 26 times. Out of those 26 shows, Harry Hood was played just five times, although it should be kept in mind that every one of those 26 shows was part of a two- or three-night run. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Lindsay Hope for joining me today, Fish.net for its help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow Attendance Bias on social media. But by far the best way to support the podcast is by visiting www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and by donating financially anything you can. Every cent goes to the operating costs of the podcast. But thank you again so much for listening and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.